This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to a special episode of the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri. This episode features a plenary session from the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics Research Conference in San Francisco, California, and the presentation is by Dr. Brent Davis, who is a professor in the School of Education at the University of Calgary in Canada. Brent Davis gave a presentation entitled, It's Like They're Speaking a Different Language, How Research into Second Language Learning Might Be Useful for Improving Mathematics Teaching Practice. And this is a very provocative talk that gets at the heart of really what it is that we're doing in mathematics education, the reform effort, and how we talk about what it is that we do in mathematics education. So thank you to Dr. Davis for allowing me to share his ideas through the venue of the MathEd podcast. Thank you to the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics and the NCTM Research Committee. And a special thank you to Raymond Johnson, who helped me to capture the audio since I was not able to be there in person. Thanks, Raymond. And you can hear a little bit about Raymond's own work in episode 1604. But now onto the presentation. The next voice you hear will be that of Dr. Brent Davis. I, every time that I do a major presentation outside of Canada, I try to incorporate the Canadian flag in some way. <laughs> Today, it's actually meaningful. I'm using the, the, uh, some of the literature from second language learning and the metaphor of second language, so let me flag it up front. Second languages are being used both metaphorically and literally as I move through this. Uh, Canada is an officially bilingual country. and. One of the things that is always present in the national psyche is that second languages aren't simply other sets of words that we can exchange back and forth. Rather, they are coherent worldviews that very often compete with one another and conflict with one another. And it demands a lot of attention and national focus in order to to negotiate this constantly. So here's actually the big question that orients what I'm talking about today. Where are we with the reform agenda? My quick answer to these big questions is always to go to Google Image and simply type in things like math teacher. But when you type in math teacher in Google Image, this is what you get, at least that's what you got yesterday. Overwhelmingly male, overwhelmingly symbol-based, overwhelmingly a single person standing in front of a whole bunch of other persons, and noticeably absent in in almost all of these images are mathematics learners. So where are we with the reform agenda? I would say this suggests that we're not where we want to be. So the research that I'm talking about today is is oriented by the the conviction that we haven't been doing a particularly good job and we can do better. I've I've organized today's talk into four main themes. First of all, I'm going to talk about the the theoretical framework, and I'm using the phrase ecosystems of analogy to, to capture that. That brings together two convictions. One is that most of human thinking is analogical, and those analogies are pulled together in grand ways of association. The second theme is educational paradigms. The idea here is that belief systems around education are instances of these ecosystems of analogy, and we need to look at them very carefully for the broad webs of association and implication that they carry with them. Then moving on to uh, language competencies, characterizing those educational paradigms as languages, and this is where the figurative dimension comes in. The suggestion is that an educational sensibility is a language, and moving from one sensibility to another sensibility is akin to learning a new language. Then uh, speaking specifically to what might be entailed with changing a mindset, and this is where I move more literally to the second language learning literature, and say, well, somebody has studied what it means to learn a new language. How might that be be useful to us as mathematics educators and mathematics educational researchers? I just want to do a couple slides setting up the study that uh, is the basis for what I'm talking about today. So it is a study that is, it's a seven-year study, and we're halfway through it. It's titled Changing the Culture of Mathematics Teaching at the School Level. And for me, the most important part of this title is the school level thing. The, the school staff is our unit of analysis. 
We are looking at that as a unified, in some sense unified, as unified as I am, a unified learner. That is uh, an appropriate level of analysis to, to studying educational change. The focus is not on individual teachers, although individual teachers are a principal source of data. It is on the grand culture of mathematics education that is being enacted in the school. Uh, the research project has uh, four co-researchers, and they are in fact co-authors of what I'm presenting today. There is a paper that is uh, in submission. If you want to read it, uh, send me an email, I'll fire, fire it back to you. But Joe Towers, Olive Chapman, Sharon Friesen, and Michelle Dress are co-authors on this presentation, and if there's something wrong with it, it's probably one of their faults. <laughs> the school in which this research is happening serves 600 plus, plus coded learners in Calgary. It starts at grade two because in order to get into the school, you have to have been demonstrated to not be a particularly good fit in the regular system. So you have to have been coded with an emotion problem, a learning problem, a cognitive problem, a behavioral problem, something that makes the regular school setting not work for you. Phrased differently, the school is actually defined by accordance of fit with standardized educational models. Now that's important for what I'm talking about today. And it, one of the reasons it's important is because when we began the project, while the school is very innovative in most ways around mathematics education, it was very standardized, very regimented, very not in keeping with the rest of the, the sensibility in the school. So the site was chosen for that reason. The learners aren't a good fit for the regular educational system. And for these reasons, the teaching staff is very stable. This is a seven-year project. We didn't want people moving in and out. If any of you have tried to work on a longitudinal project, one of the great frustrations right, is changing teaching staff. They keep great records. Every child is tested every year for just about everything. Uh, they wanted to partner as much as we did. And they have a strong institutional commitment to, to research, both conducting and enacting. And that has contributed to tremendous success across subject areas, most subject areas, and math was not one of those. They recognized that and recognized that they needed uh, research assistance, and that, was, I, I think, is the principal reason why they welcomed us with open arms and our strange ideas. So the research sensibility methodology uh, that is uh, orienting what we're doing here is design research. Uh, borrowing from Hoadley uh, for a very quick and dirty definition, a methodology in which participants attempt to understand the world by working to change it and while working to change it. If that makes no sense to you, too bad. Uh, it is characterized by, uh, these are three key qualities, but there are, are other important ones that I'm skipping over. Multiple methods, just the, you're looking at a lot of things simultaneously. Select the method that is appropriate to whatever facet of the phenomenon you're looking at. It is iterative, that is, you don't pre entirely preset the methodology. Rather, as things move along, you bring in new things, you adapt what you're up to, etc. And it produces varied data sets. So our preliminary strategy in this project, the first two and a half, three years that we did it, was to try and infuse uh, information into the system through, through a master's degree program. Uh, we invited any teacher who was interested to join us for a, a, a course-based master's degree program. Uh, they earned it over three years, and it was focused on uh, mathematics pedagogy. They were self-identified, and the school, this is an indication how much the school was on board with it, the school paid for the master's degree. In terms of the data sets that that generated for us, with this particular aspect of working with the, the teachers, we, got, we have regular interval in, interviews, start of the year, end of the year, sometimes middle of the year if something interesting is happening. Uh, regular classroom observations for all participants and additional teachers who invite us into their classrooms. The mathematical artifacts that teachers are using, including textbooks and things hanging on the wall. One interesting thing about this school is at the start of the project, there was not one number line hanging anywhere in the school. Uh, just as an indication of what was there and what was not there. The subsequent strategy after that one is what I'm reporting on today. So that was our first iteration, second iteration, is based on what happened uh, over the course of that master's program. 
Okay, so ecosystems of analogy. This is kind of the theoretical framework, how people think. Before getting into that, I have a couple quick warm-up exercises. The first is this. I'm inviting you to uh, identify a synonym of teaching that really resonates with you. And if you can, write it down or type it in, because I want you to commit, it, commit to it. A synonym for teaching. If you're having trouble thinking of one, here are 150 that I gathered from uh, a couple online thesauruses. It turns out that there are at least three or four hundred regular synonyms, commonly used synonyms for teaching in the English language, which speaks to the incredible diversity of opinion there is on this topic. When we use the word teaching, we're probably not agreeing with one another entirely on what we're talking about. So, is there a term that particularly resonates for you? The sources are notoriously behind the times, so you might be thinking of one that isn't on the list. That's cool. Here's warm-up exercise number two. In 2012, about four years ago, the Edmonton Public School Board, which uh, is, uh, Edmonton is the capital city of Alberta, about 300 kilometers, uh, 200 miles north of where I live, they suspended and ultimately fired uh, a teacher for getting zeros when, he, when students missed tests or didn't hand in assignments. And there was a big court battle. I'll tell you what happened later. But if you were judging this case, whose side would you be on? The teachers or the school boards? Should the teacher have been allowed to do that? Or was the school board justified in firing? And you've just been hired to, defi to defend the other side, the side that you don't believe in, in court. How would you justify that? And how would you justify that in as few words as possible? So, I'm not going to ask for your responses, but I did do this with uh, several groups. One, one of them was the teachers in the school that I work with. Another group was pre-service teachers. Every year I teach a class of 300 to 400 students. And for the past three years, I've used this as a case study to, see, to get into how people think. The pro or dal arguments always go this way. They tend to be one of these arguments, that grades are earnings, that they are measurements, that they are motivators, rewards, and punishments, and therefore, you should be able to assign zero. If somebody has earned nothing, then you tell them they've earned nothing. All of these come out with an answer of zero. On the pro-school uh, pro, pro board side, they tend to be this way, that grades are feedback, and if you have nothing to feedback on, then you don't say zero, you say, I have nothing to feedback on. If they are reflections of understandings, then you have no information. Telling a zero, giving a zero is not a reflection of anything. That, that's a useless data. You may have thought of other things, but it's the way it tends to go. So three points on these. First of all, these rationales are all based on metaphors. The earnings one is based, is drawn from commerce. It entered the formal education about 300 years ago with the rise of capitalism and industrialism. Prior to that, the notion of grades, which is an economic term, it turns out, uh, was not present within education. Feedback, in contrast, is a notion that's less than 100 years old. It comes to us from electronics, and our most familiar example of feedback is the thing that happens when we have uh, the feedback in microphones, right? So it's this uh, amplification or dampening, if it's a positive feedback loop, a dampening if it's a negative feedback loop. This notion was picked up in education about 40 years ago in direct response to the use of positive and negative rewards. They said, no, what teachers are doing are not positive and negative rewards, a la behaviorism. It is positive feedback, foosh, or negative feedback, dampening, uh, which is a completely different image set. Unfortunately, that's been lost, but it was a, a great notion when it was introduced. So, point number two, those metaphors actually exist and persist because of uh, grander webs of association for the uh, idea that grades are earnings that comes to us from out of, out of commerce. If we look at the grander web of association on this one in education, it's huge. Uh, notions of evaluation, scoring, assessment, and marking all come to us out of economics. Now, again, that's a notion that has been largely lost, but if you look at the, go to the online etymological dictionary and look at where these words come from, everyone comes out of business, 
applied to education two or three hundred years ago. And that makes those notions particularly persistent and, and compelling. Third point, it can be really difficult to identify one's metaphors. And even more difficult to, to get a sense of a grander web, partly because those grander webs tend to dominate and, and suck in uh, alternative ways of thinking. And that has happened to us with the notion that grades are feedback. For most people, uh, I think this is fair to say, the notion of feedback aligns really well with the notions of earnings. And that's because feedback has come to be uh, equated with exchange rather than amplifications and dampenings. So this, the, the grand web has a way of squashing and playing off the, the rough edges of challenging ideas. So in the case of Dordal versus EPSB, I mentioned I teach this last course. This was the result uh, last time around when I asked the students this question. Uh, uh, there were about 340 students. Overwhelmingly thought that Dordal was justified. Notably, when I asked them in a, through a response system to dig their metaphor out of their justification, everyone who chose feedback was able to dig up the metaphor. A huge portion of the, those who went with Dorbell couldn't pull out their metaphor. Now that makes sense, because they were immersed in it. Fish can't see water kind of idea. But that matters because if you can't see the metaphor you're using to justify your educational um, opinions, then you don't have much hope of changing them. And that's the sensibility that's driving what I'm talking about today. So elaborating on each of those points just a bit because they are so critical to the argument I'm making. First of all, humans are analogical beings. We are creatures who are capable of logic, but we're not particularly good at logic. Now this is an insight of the, out of the cognitive sciences that really only entered the collective psyche in the last half century. Prior to that, it was assumed that humans' capacity for logic is what distinguishes us from other creatures. Not so. We're not particularly logical. Yeah, uh, so, so that, that's what this point is. Most commonly, and this persists in the literature, humans are are seen as logical and sequential beings. And if you believe that, it would make sense to organize educational experiences as logical progressions through, sub through subject areas. Again, the cognitive science insight is that, in fact, we are associated analogical beings. And if you believe that, then the curriculum structures that we are, uh, that, that dominate, are a bit problematic that we should be thinking of other ways to organize educational experiences other than these linear, linear trudges through disciplinary areas. So re-emphasizing, for the most part, we think associatively through images, through analogies, through metaphors, and so on. Point number two, metaphors exist in grand webs of association. This particular quote is from Kevin Kelly who is a, uh, associated with Wired Magazine. I think he's one of the founding editors, but I'm not sure about that. Out of a book called, What Does Technology Want? The really important part for me on this one is the, uh, the last two sentences. Ideas fly in flocks. To hold one idea in mind means to hold a cloud of them. So our ideas are never singular. They just go with a whole bunch of other things. Not unlike a language. And third point, identifying metaphors in their webs is difficult. This is, uh, has been talked about by philosophers for a long time. One commonly cited analogy, uh, instance of this, borrowing uh, from Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions, is the way that we look at the universe. For millennia, the Earth was assumed to be the center of everything, even though that gave rise to completely convoluted images of the motions of celestial objects. A half a millennium ago, the, the thinking changed. If we put the sun in the center, that makes for much, much simpler diagrams. However, it creates the problem of the shell of stars that, that orbits around us. And that's, that's an improvement, but still a problem. In the last century, the suggestion was that uh, time is in the center. If you put time in the center of the universe, that gives a very different model that sorts out all sorts of problems. And more recently, 
the suggestion has been uh, put forward that the whole problem is the notion of universe, that in fact we inhabit multiverse, a multiverse. And I don't know anything about that, so I'm going to stop with that one. But the point is that these ideas were persistent, not because people were stupid, but because people were inhabiting clouds of association. And when you're inside a cloud of association, if the model that is presented to you makes sense, then it persists. So education as a phenomenon has experienced something very similar. Here are some of the clouds of association about education that are present, or have been present. Uh, in terms of formal education, many people cite the Plato's Academy, or the Greek Academy system, as the, the dawn of formal education. It's not a really good idea. It turns out that formal education existed thousands of years before that in other places, but we'll go with that. About a thousand years, scholastic education arose, um, mixing Greek sensibilities with um, church sensibilities with other things. A few hundred years ago, standardized education rose to the fore. Authentic education with um, influences like Dewey and Piaget, very strong over the past century. Democratic citizenship education emerged as a strong force about 50 years ago and, is a, and an ever stronger force uh, in the, the education literature. And more recently, systemic sustainability education, this idea that we, we need to teach beyond our species, is starting to gain some mass attraction. Now, unlike conceptions of the universe, which tend to replace one another, these ones, unfortunately, tend to persist. They're all present in one way or another in our educational discourses. So what might we do about that? We're going to focus on these two in particular, authentic education and standardized education, because these are the, this is the battleground of the math wars. So moving on to part two, some of the, moving to explicit use of the metaphor of language as educational, sensi or educational sensibility as language. So one of the things that I've been doing with a couple of the research groups that I work with at the University of Calgary is to look at the webs of association that are present in educational systems. Now we're all familiar with standardized education, but what we might not be so intimately familiar with is the web of associated, first of all, it, the origins of its metaphoric set and the grander web of association. It turns out that standardized education is traceable in terms of the grand web of associations, the overarching objective mechanical kind of sensibilities that define standardized education. Those can be traced back to the physical sciences, in particular physics and the rise of industry, and the associated rise of the public school a few hundred years ago. Yeah, that's associated with particular conceptions of knowledge, learning, and teaching. Knowledge in particular tends to be seen in objectified terms, as artifacts, as objectives, as things. Learning as acquisition of those things, and teaching as delivery of those things. And when you examine the, the literature of standardized education, these metaphors are pervasive and consistent. Authentic education, again, yeah, Dewey, Piaget, and others over the last century working very hard to uh, articulate a coherence around this uh, arose mainly in the human sciences, again, mainly over the last century, but draws its metaphors not from physics and industry, but from biology and structuralism. So metaphors are organic. They're about branching possibilities as opposed to a linear trajectory somewhere. In terms of knowledge, it tends to be characterized in terms of personal interpretations or webs of association. In terms of learning, that is the emergence or the evolution of those webs. And in terms of teaching, it becomes setting the conditions for the development of those webs. So I'm going to talk about standardized education as traditional ease and authentic education as reform ease. Again, using the metaphor of languages and learning a second language, arguing that these languages are internally consistent, but mutually incoherent. For somebody who dwells entirely in one domain, the other domain makes no sense at all. The uh, opening line on the, the first slide that I had, it's like they're speaking another language, was actually uttered by one of the participants who inhabits the traditionally sensibility who just cannot make sense 
of what her, the, her colleagues who are much more reformees are saying. Okay, and this is just a reminder that these are subsets of grander cultural sensibilities, that in fact these little clouds of association are parts of much larger, vaster clouds of association. So restating the point, uh, borrowing from a person whose name I absolutely cannot pronounce and I'm not going to attempt, but it starts with a G, the obstructions that present, prevent a system from facing its current reality are self-imposed. Hidden and out of reach, they reside at the core of our perceptions and find expression in mental models, assumptions, and images. These obstructions are responsible for preserving the system as it is and frustrates its efforts to become what it can be. This is a statement that in, is entirely anchored in reformees, or not entirely alignable with reformees. But it's a statement that doesn't necessarily make sense to somebody who's inhabiting traditional ways. So the big question that our research is focusing on, or the, the, the big thought out of our research, is that moving from one sensibility to another is like learning a new language. It's becoming fluent with an entirely new web of association. Now when I throw something like that out there, one of the problems with metaphoric thought is that it brings on unwanted baggage. So there are, are things that I want to flag right away that we're not aiming at, and one of those things is that we are aiming at, that, that the uh, analogy doesn't carry. For the second language learning, one of the big questions is how do you learn a new language while preserving the first language? That's where our metaphor breaks down. We want to know how you can learn the second language and completely forget the first one. Uh, there, and there are other breakdowns, and it's always the case with figurative thinking. And the second cautionary note is that there are many other languages that are out there that are probably uh, warrant uh, some familiarity. Two other examples, and I'm just going to toss these up and move on. I, I've already mentioned democratic citizenship education that began about 50 years ago in, in force. Actually, it traces back many more centuries. But as a coherent educational movement, it's not that old. Its uh, source metaphors are about contracts and collaboration because it's rooted in sociology and economics. It has its own conception of knowledge, its own definitions of learning, and its own recommendations for teaching. In particular, the prominent metaphors for teaching out of this one are enculturating and empowering, giving voice, things like that. And uh, also mentioned systemic sustainability education. Uh, it's seems to be anchored mainly in the complexity sciences. Its principal metaphors are about ecosystems and emergence, and its uh, favorite metaphors for teaching after we go through its conceptions of knowledge and learning are about uh, designing and engaging. But I'm not talking about those last two clouds of association today. Just flagging up, there are others that we need to be concerned about as educators and educational researchers. All right, third tab, language competencies. So, I'm going to introduce one of the teachers, Stan, his last name is Gerdized. <laughs> so this is how we've conducted our analysis. We looked across all of, uh, all of the data that we've gathered. Again, interviews, coursework, teaching, <coughs> informal discussions, everything that we've gathered. Uh, here are some snippets from Stan that give us in a sense, afford us, insight into how he is thinking, what web of associations he inhabits. Or in terms of teaching, he sees it overwhelmingly as the delivery of knowledge objects. Some statements from Stan, and I apologize for the size of this, but it's one of, one of the things that happens when you focus on linguistic analysis, is that you need a lot of words on the slide to defend your case. Uh, but, whenever he talks about teaching, it's about showing clear step-by-step -step process. That is, delivering something. Tell them the trick, that is, deliver something. Identify the operation, that is, deliver something. And it is this consistent, almost rhythmic way of talking about what teaching is. It's always about delivering an object. In terms of learning, overwhelmingly, acquisition of that object, where we pick things up, where we get things, where things become automatized. That is, it, it's completely consistent in his vocabulary that learning is acquisition. And in terms of uh, what knowledge is, one of the things that is typical of Stan is he can't answer the question of what's knowledge. It always gets answered in terms of what he, of his responsibilities as a teacher. So 
Our interpretation is that knowledge, for, for, for Stanley, is that knowledge is seen as a constructible or discoverable object that's out in the world. But he never really says anything like that. Uh, a math concept is a solution to a pattern. The meaning of a concept is certain steps. It's something that's set that out in the universe. But that's, that's one of our inferences. Again, he never articulates that directly. Moving on to uh, one of the teacher participants who speaks reform use fluently. This is Otho, last name Entic. Otho sees knowledge in terms of the dynamic web of associations. And one thing about Otho, in distinction from Stan, is when you pose the question of what's knowledge, Otho will answer it directly. As the study of relationships, as uh, something that happens in a context, that, uh, and that context matters, and will go on in length. If you ask about learning, Otho sees it in terms of construing coherence. One, unlike Stan, who tended to have only a singular metaphor articulated in different ways, Otho has kind of this broad set of interpretations for each core metaphor. So this learning is construing coherence. He articulates in terms of connecting ideas, in terms of personalizing ideas, and in terms of evolving and adapting webs of association. And in terms of teaching, Otho sees teaching as designing settings to support sense-making. Again, multiple, varied vocabulary, engaging his students, challenging his students, uh, presenting affordances for his students. So when we compare the traditional ease of Stan and the reform ease of Otho, some notable uh, observations are, as I've already mentioned, Stan is unable to speak explicitly to learning and knowledge. They are just he knows what learning and knowledge are, they are just not present to him as ready definitions. And he has a really limited lexicon for teaching. In contrast, Otho is able to summon a rich range of interpretations for all of these. For both, when we move into the classroom, we have extensive classroom observations, uh, upward to 50, watching 50 lessons uh, for each. The teaching is incredibly consistent with the cloud of associations that they use. Now that's important. So in this research, we've worked with a few teachers who are monolingual speakers of, of, of standardized education, and a few teachers who are strongly fluent authentic education. And again, they are really consistent in their classrooms. It completely fits with their Webster association. But the vast, vast majority of teachers, 90%-ish, seem to exist between the two languages. And this, we think, is the issue with the reform agenda. So one way of being between languages, and we are using this metaphorically, is to develop a pigeon. A pigeon is a language that combines, a, a pseudo-language that combines elements from two or more languages. One of the issues with a pigeon is that it can kind of sort of give you the impression that you understand what the person is saying, when you might not. So here's the pigeon that we think we found. I'm calling it a middle language now rather than a pigeon. The core metaphoric set is around exploration and discovery, where the principal meta metaphor for knowledge, metaphors for knowledge are territories, maps, and hidden treasures, where learning is about navigating or exploring those territories and finding those hidden treasures, and where teaching is about the facilitation of that navigation or guiding through those territories or orienting toward the treasures. So, uh, introducing Middleton, a teacher who, who speaks this middle language almost all the time. If you ask Middleton what knowledge is, he will answer it in terms of, he'll use metaphors of navigation and territory. For instance, he'll say things like, to know means you can see, you can navigate it. Or a concept is like a map, there are certain steps to move through it. If you ask him about um, what learning is, he'll stick with the same metaphoric frame and talk about movement in some way, exploration, different ways of getting there, etc. And if you ask about what teaching is, uh, he'll talk about moving through that territory and offering assistance where necessary. My favorite quote in the entire research, though, came from Middleton, this statement, on what he thought teaching was. I liken it, that is teaching, to facilitation, you know, as opposed to teaching as much. Now there's an interesting tension in that statement to answer what teaching is in terms of, it's not teaching isn't teaching, it's like facilitation. So there's, you, you sense in this statement there is some conflict 
which is sometimes a good thing. Contrasting this with the traditional needs of Stan and the reform needs of Otho, presents the question of why is there a problem that this middle language is there and so prominent? Again, probably 90% of the teachers inhabit this language most of the time. Why is that a problem? Three reasons that we can think of. First of all, it doesn't seem that this language is sufficient to move sensibilities. That is, it's not powerful, to, powerful enough to interrupt the traction, the, the inertia of standardized education. It also, another problem we've noted is that people who speak this really well and frequently, they, they sometimes fool themselves into thinking that they're speaking reformees. And the third problem is that Midlish is a really, really easy target for critics of the reform movement. We'll more on that in an upcoming slide. So, the idea that Midlish isn't sufficient to move sensibilities in a ways that affects classroom practice. I've already mentioned both Stan and Otho, the way they talk and the way they teach, incredibly consistent. Something weird happens in Midlish. The teaching practices are a little schizophrenic, and uh, I apologize for my use of the word schizophrenic. My the the ed uh, psych person on our team says I shouldn't be using it, but I am. It's a metaphor. Sometimes when Middleton is talking, he says things that are very standardese, and sometimes when Middleton is talking, he says things that sound pretty much reformies. But when we get into Middleton's classroom. Overwhelmingly, it's standardese. It's traditional. The idea that uh, Middleish permits a, a waffling, it, it's hard to pin down where these people are. So, a couple months ago, I interviewed people in each of these categories, multiple people, I'm, but I'm representing them, oh, yeah, multiple people, uh, around different issues that are really prominent in mathematics education. And I was looking for how do people occupy in these language groups uh, characterize these phenomena and these issues. My favorite topic right now is spatial reasoning. So I asked them to talk about spatial reasoning. Big topic in Calgary, a lot of, lots of in-service and teachers' conventions and other things uh, foregrounding the notion. So those speaking traditionally tend to, to see spatial reasoning as something more, oh, we've got this already packed curriculum, this bucket filled with these objects, and you're asking us to throw in more objects that students have to acquire and that we have to deliver. Completely consistent with the metaphoric frame. People speaking reformies tend to see, tend to frame uh, spatial reasoning as something in. It's already there. It's woven through what we're already being asked to teach. It is my job just to bring it into sharper relief. So it's not something more at all. It is something that is present and something that is valuable. And people who speak Midlish tend to see it as something for. And sort of, where does this fall? And it fits with that metaphor of getting to where you're going. It is, it is a vehicle that you can hop in that will get you there more quickly, that kind of idea. The math wars. How do they characterize the math wars? Well, traditionally, see, see it as a war. That phrase in is a standardized education, reform, or a, a, a traditionalese kind of notion. It is a battle between forces. Uh, in procedural fluency versus uh, conceptual understanding, for example, but there are other ways of framing the, the sides of the battle, but the, the metaphor is overwhelmingly a fight. For the reformies, it always goes to yin-yang for some reason. I, I think that's part of the, the particular culture of this school. But where we have these different types of understanding, conceptual and procedural, and those work together and flow against one another, and they have this lovely way of talking about it that is about balance and harmony, not battling. Where do the Midlish people land? Tends to be metaphors of balance. Where we have to balance those types of understanding, or we need to balance growth practice and discovery learning, but there are these, the, the teacher is always in this awkward balance. Group work. Where do they see group work? The traditional these people tend not to like group work. It tends to be reduced to pod sittings, pod seating. That is, group-based uh, occasions for doing individualized work. <laughs> Reformees tend to, th these are, are, are occasions for working together, for creating knowledge-producing collectives. Completely different way of talking about it. And for the Midlish, 
this weird, non-committal people cooperating. What are they cooperating for? Is it cooperating to support one another's individualized understanding? What is it about? It's this wafting space. Problem solving. For traditional needs, it tends to be seen as an application of skills. So you do your, you teach your skill for the day, and then you get to the problem set at the end. For reformees, and this is a quote, uh, one of the, the teachers in this language has, has talked about uh, problem solving as part of mathematical modeling. It's living the math. That's a completely different way of being with the notion of problem solving. And our Midlish representative suggested that problem solving was an opportunity to build enjoyment and self-confidence. Not sure what to make of that. Pedagogical content knowledge, uh, mathematics for teaching, the traditional needs, well, of course, we're interested in that topic because I need to know more than my students know. Okay. Reformies, pedagogical content knowledge is about getting inside the concepts. And this is very much the way that Schulman uh, articulated it in his original 1986 paper, in fact. And the Midlish people, I hate this answer, I have to confess, but it's a willingness to muddle together. Model through concepts together with your students. And they very frequently use this as a justification for not knowing much math. That, oh, I learned it together. We, we explore together. We discover together. Oh, help me, Jesus. <laughs> Sorry. So the bottom line is this that in this school, Midlish is much more closely aligned with standardized education than with reformees. And my guess is that if you were to poll the general public, that would be true. And that's the reason for the image that came up when I did my Google image search for math teaching. That even those who are speaking this middle language and advocating it are imagining those images in the backdrop. Third reason that this middleish is a problem is that it's an easy target for back to basics people. So this is a thing that we're facing big time in Alberta. In uh, a PISA, I think it was PISA, a test about a uh, thing 10 years, no it wasn't, it was Tim's, uh, in 2008-2009, Alberta, my home province, was the highest scoring English-speaking jurisdiction in the world. Yay us. Unfortunately, regression to the mean and all that, in the subsequent test we weren't. And we dropped actually a few notches. That prompted, of course, a massive back-to-basics movement. We're not number one anymore, we had better go back to the beginning. And one, one of the uh, aspects of that movement was a huge online petition with thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, signatures that organizes its critique of, math of school mathematics around, yes, in the middle, discovery math. This is an easy, easy target. It is the language of Middleish, but it is much more readily aligned with standardized education than it is with reformees. It is a language that I think we need to avoid. We put it out there, somehow we need to retract it. We are feeding the, those who want to avoid any kind of reform by using the language of discovery and navigation and searching and finding. This uh, has actually amplified itself to the level of um, national uh, criticism and educational movements, and the, the whole path of basis thing. And the closing portion. So what was your synonym for teaching? And does it fall into one of these columns? Well, I'm not actually going to ask you. But when I did ask this question uh, of the teachers of the school, most of them fell into the middle column. In particular, uh, facilitating and guiding were their favorite metaphors. So we pose this question to the teaching community. How might we avoid a middle language when learning a new language? So now I'm moving to literal second languages research. Here are some of the insights that second language learning offer to us as educators. First of all, if you want to develop fluency, you need to dwell in an immersive setting. Routines, regular demands, unpredictable challenges, and lots of peer support. So one of the things that we're aiming to do in this research is to develop an immersive setting. The next slide is, is going to say how we're, we're trying to do that. You need to develop metacognitive awareness. That is, you need to be explicit about the vocabulary that you want people to use. You need to be explicit about the feedback. 
Uh, and you need to be attentive to the fact that the new language is a brand new sensibility, a completely different worldview that demands a grander web of association. So it's not just let's use this word, let's use this word, but let's try to inhabit this cloud of association. Uh, another thing the second language learning uh, literature recommends is that you engage in the challenge of bringing others into the language. This is, a, this is something we know as educators, right? One of the best ways of learning something is to try and teach somebody else. Uh, so uh, one of the ways this is going to manifest in, in our project is that the teachers are taking on the project of inviting parents into the discourse. And time, give yourself lots of time. Uh, one of the, the distinctions that's available in the, the second language literature is uh, between conversational fluency and academic fluency. Conversational fluency is you can survive when you go and to the store and want to buy milk and butter. Uh, academic fluency is that you can express ideas in new and novel ways. And it takes a long time to develop <coughs> this academic fluency. So here's our next emerging design-based research iteration. We are in the process of co-designing with the staff of the school an actual research project within the design-based research project. And so far that we've taken these two steps. In mid-February, I met with administrators at the school uh, to think through the next steps, and I, introduced, and I presented to them an initial version of this talk, actually, showing what our, the analysis that we had done and where we think things are at. And at the end of February, <coughs> I presented a slightly elaborated version of what I presented to them to the entire teaching staff. I was a, I, I was a little bit anxious in doing this because uh, you wander into a, a, a teaching staff and say 90% of you are speaking something incoherent. Not a popular message. But they embraced it with incredible enthusiasm. Like something really resonated with the manner in which it was presented. So that was a happy thing. They uh, immediately left on board with the idea of a, what's holding us back, what is our language, how are we talking about things, what do I think knowledge is, what do I tend to characterize, what am I communicating with my students in the manner of representation, those types of questions. And have agreed that over the balance of the school year that we will work together to co-construct a grander project, the actual research project for next year. So next year, the project is envisioned at the moment to involve students and parents, and not just the teachers, in a change the language. And they're already designing the posters. Among the things that in this uh, shared work that they have agreed upon are bi-weekly bi provocations. So this is every two weeks I have to deliver a new provocation. This week's, and it's happening today, uh, well, I'm away, but it's reformees and homework. How would you de define, describe, characterize, defend, or critique homework within the language of reformees? How is that different from standard ID, standardized, standardies, no, traditionalies, and uh, where does the middlish uh, tend to muddy the waters on that. PCK support. One of the things that almost everyone said immediately is, oh my god, we need better math to do this. Yeah, it kind of warms my heart, right? It's, yes, you finally agree with me. Let's go with that. So we'll be offering uh, focus support on developing teachers' knowledge of mathematics. And one of the things that we're going to be doing around that is using spatial reasoning as a focal element. Right? Again, this is my favorite topic right now. So indulge me in one slide on why spatial reasoning is really important, not just for this group, but for all of us. Spatial reasoning has powerful disruptive possibilities for standardizes and middle-aged speakers. See, it, one of the reasons is that you can readily defend it in terms of standardese. There is this abundance of empirical evidence on why you should care about this, which tends to be framed in standardized standardese language. But to make sense of why we need to be incorporating it in our teaching, we need to actually think in reformee sorts of ways. And that's it's having really interesting ripples within the school community. Spatial reasoning is a high-impact topic. It strongly predicts success, interest, etc. in STEM domains. It correlates with all academic, uh, success across all academic domains. It's a high-yield skill set. It transfers nicely to others uh, across skills and disciplines. It's malleable, it can be learned. Um, it's underused and underdeveloped. It's pretty much ignored in explicit curriculum documents. And that might be amplifying its dissociation with mathematics learning. So it's, it is this powerful focal point 
for interrupting standardized and nibbish. And finally, this is kind of sort of my concluding slide. I don't know if these are justifiable conclusions, but I'm taking advantage of this format, the fact that I am uh, not subject, these statements are not being subjected to reviewers to claim these are true. <laughs> Perhaps more than any other profession, teaching happens in the vernacular, in the popular setting. This is the most important statement, I think, in the presentation. So I'm going to read it word for word. It took me a long time to, frame, to phrase it. No educational language can be benefited than standardized education to the contemporary culture of scientific objectification and capitalistic commodification. That is, this is the space that we inhabit as citizens of the modern Western world, scientism and capitalism. So to survive in this discursively hostile milieu, the language of authentic education must be deliberately distinct. It has to be disruptive enough to make you realize when you're not speaking it. And Midlish does not do that. We can't continue talking about teaching and learning as navigating, facilitating, discovering. And thinking in terms of educational sensibilities as language reminds us uh, that uh, learning a sensibility, new sensibility is not easy. It takes time, it takes effort. Community really matters, that we shouldn't be thinking in terms of uh, learning these new languages in terms of PD sessions, but as collective uh, enterprises over years, and that there are other languages that are really important. So one final slide. Already ripped these apart, but a reminder that there are other languages out there. These are two of them. and that these other languages don't need to conflict in quite the same way that these two conflict. That there is a way of thinking of these in complementary, co-amplifying terms, and I think that as educational re researchers and educational reformers is something that we need to keep in mind. So this is not about choose your favorite theory and go there. It is about an openness to the diverse discourses that are out there and trying to find a deeper compatibility among them. And, uh,